Hello and welcome to episode two of Teaching with Technology, um, the podcast hosted by Pitt Journals here at UNC Chapel Hill. My name is Patrick Conway. I'm Allison Beatty. I'm Kat Ola. And I'm Dan Anderson. And um, today we're going to be speaking with Matthew Duncan, who is a teaching fellow in the Department of English and Comparative Literature. Um, Matthew is interested in digital rhetoric, so he's got a some good insights into the way that teaching and technology intersect. And um, we're gonna have a a nice conversation and some uh, back and forth with Matt. Welcome, Matt. We're so glad you're here to join us. And could you introduce yourself and give us just a a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, Named Matt Duncan. I'm a fifth year student in uh, Rec Comp at UNC in the English department. I'm almost ABD, finishing up my prospectus. Um, And uh, I'm interested in digital rhetoric, specifically um, looking at uh, algorithmic writing practices in the first year writing classroom. And so I take... uh, opportunities wherever I can get them to explore um, how those writing practices play out in a variety of contexts. Um, Social media is just one of them, but uh, this unit you have me on to talk about, I had the chance to teach spring of 2021. um, And we were talking about uh, like the pandemic and I was just trying to remember when exactly this took place. I'm so glad I had documentation because that entire block of time is just a big blur. Um, But I, uh, I taught that class totally remote. Um, which at first I thought was, you know, going to be cool and, uh, you know, appropriate because it was a social media class. But um, TikTok especially, um, I, I think, tends to lend itself to um, having like a common environment. So it was a challenge um, because the point of reference was so different for every student. Like, I think it would have been a lot stronger if we'd had like class TikToks. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's who I am. That's why I'm here. Um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome. I, I'll, I've got a bunch of questions. Uh, Kat and um, Allison Meredith, please jump in um, with anything at all. Um, but I just wanted to ask you right about what you just said right now about a uniform environment. And were you saying that TikTok didn't give them a kind of uniform environment or what, what was that sort of like platform like? So, I mean, first of all, I had to teach the platform. Um, not all of my students uh, were familiar with it or used it like a few had. Um, this was also like, this was more or less peak pandemic because we were coming off that big winter wave. Um, and, uh, you know, TikTok was really starting to take off more. Um, so like, um, I don't know. I, I think I assumed it would have more currency, more cash than it did with them. I, this this is the mistake I always make with my students in tech. Um, but, uh, no. So like it was a challenge to, um, to try and get them through the app itself, uh, without in-class opportunities. Um, it was also like everything was very boutique and individual and atomized. Like people were mostly shooting in their dorms, um, or their rooms, wherever they were staying. Um, and, uh, it was more of a challenge. Um, I, I had, you know, basically no way to like, whereas when I teach memes, like um, a lot of the times, like you can have them make memes about the class. Like it was difficult to make class TikToks 
basically, because class was like everybody's room and class was different for everybody else. Um, and the experience itself was very visually, you know, austere, like nobody's camera was on. Um, and like, you know, what I can see this lovely wall that cat has, like that was not something we were seeing in spring of 2021. Nobody had their camera on. I was looking at white names on black backgrounds. So yeah. TikTok. One of the things I do want to say about it is that it makes advantage of the phenomena of constant video recording. That's why I think it was so popular during the Zoom era. Um, people were already getting really comfortable recording themselves as a matter of just doing their jobs or going to school. Um, that's one of the reasons I think it jumped off. And uh, so that was like a way um, as well to, to kind of create more community um, or, or at least a sense that, uh, you know, we could see each other, but it was like, it was very abstracted too. Um, it wasn't natural or organic, like it is in a classroom, um, because they were curating, they were editing. Um, and they often had, you know, because the assignment was rhetorical analysis, um, some sort of point or argument to make, or they were getting to something. So, yeah. I know you said earlier, um, just to go off of that, that you said your um, students didn't have a lot of like understanding and this was before TikTok had really sort of popped off amongst undergraduates. Do you, do you find the experience difficult acclimating them to this sort of pop culture phenomenon and sort of putting it in an academic setting where it typically thrives in sort of a informal social setting? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yes. And I think that this happens – Basically, anytime we take any of these super popular apps or platforms and try to put them in a class context, my uh, intellectual understanding of things like TikTok is that they really, you know, they operate as sort of kind of a currency and they flow and circulate. And once you pull something out to examine it in a class environment, you're really alienating it from its context, um, which is fine. Like, I think you have to, because the speed at which these exchanges take place, um, you know, to do any kind of real deep thinking analysis or intellectual critique, you have to do that. Um, so like it, it's one of those situations where like they were eager to take to it. Um, and, you know, I think making the TikToks was fun, but also like when we had to sort of pull back and be like, okay, well now like, you know, what are, what are the affordances of this platform? What's it persuading you to do when you use it? Um, and then like, how is it acting, you know, when, when you, uh, like take in content from others, like what's moving you, um, you know, what gets a follow from you, what gets a like, um, you know, it, it, I, I see the same thing when I teach like Twitter. Um, it's, it's very similar. So when you say, um, what is it getting you to do? What is the platform getting you to do? That's um, also making me think about what you said at the very beginning about algorithmic writing mm -hmm. and, um, uh, when I think of algorithmic writing, I typically think of maybe a computer programmer using some statistics knowledge to like make an algorithm or tweak an algorithm. So, but you're not talking about somebody writing an algorithm. You're talking about algorithms doing the writing, um, and and that puts the agency not on the typical author in a class, which would be the student, but on something else. No, yeah, I, I guess I should clarify that. When I say algorithmic writing, I mean like the ways in which arguments kind of prefigure audiences and responses through predictive technology that's derived from large swaths of data um, and the way that 
um, when you're interacting, particularly with social media platforms, you can be moved to uh, a piece of content or a particular viewpoint or perspective you didn't even necessarily know that you wanted, but because of machinic processes and your interaction with the platform, it can be predicted. Um, and then when you interact with those very same processes, you have to respond to the way that works um, in order to move your content in front of people that uh, you know would want to see it. You have to kind of predict how the algorithm will pick it up and who it will you know, be put in front of. And the, the sales pitch with this stuff is that it provides, you know, again, like that it is predictive or that it's determinative of human behavior. Um, but what I think is going on really is that uh, what it does is it shapes you to be sortable, predictable, um, and to fit in the category. And then you will interact with the machine in the way that it finds pleasing to ease your interactions with it. And then if you create something that you think is going to appeal to others, you use those same categories, you kind of push your content into these prefigured um, forms. Is that fair to say? Or, or So I, I'll give you an example. Yeah, like a current example is TikTok right now. Um, there's like uh, several incredibly popular um, seven second uh, sounds. Um and TikTok is really pushing that seven second window because by their metric, um, seven seconds is uh, about the ideal amount that people want to spend on a TikTok before they keep scrolling. Um, and they want to see as much currency and as much movement as possible. Um, so uh, their algorithm was boosting um, creators that were using that seven second sound. And so knowing that if you wanted to get something out there, it behooved you to make it with that seven second frame. Um, and, you know, like understanding, you know, if, if you're a person that, you know, is, is a content creator for a living, um, or, you know, for, for whatever rhetorical reason you might have that you want to, you know, be, have some traffic and, and persuasive weight on the platform, like you kind of have to go with what the algorithm is asking for. Um, and again, like you will do that because, you know, you want to draw the power from the platform, um, not because it's the most rhetorically effective thing you could do for your message, right? Not because your ideas fit within that frame, but because more people will see it and they'll perform that simple binary operation that is the essence of all social media interaction. They'll either thumbs up or thumbs down, whatever form that takes. Well, that was certainly interesting. Um, I really enjoyed hearing kind of an overview of what he's teaching. I've never heard anything like that before. I'm kind of fascinated by the idea that everything is getting shorter. Um, I taught some uh, vertical videos about two years ago, and I was telling students, you've got to stick within 60 seconds. Um, and then about a year ago, it was 30 seconds. And now I'm hearing Matt say that, you know, the standard is seven seconds. And I just, um, I'm amazed at the pace at which that is shortened and shortened even further. And wondering what that what that says you know uh, about our culture and uh, attention spans i guess yeah and, and i'm not on tiktok um so a lot of that was new to me seven seconds seems awfully short but i mean i guess if you see a thousand of them in a day it makes sense yeah yeah i definitely feel like as one of the many gen zers that's on TikTok currently, I definitely feel like my attention span has gotten shorter since joining the platform. 
And I feel like it's an active sort of uphill battle for me to focus on longer form video content, for example, things that I'm watching for pleasure. Um, when on TikTok, I can get the same content in 30 seconds, which is awful to say, but that's how my brain is starting to work. It's such a cheat for your brain to get that like perfect little rush of serotonin when everything is packaged so nicely. And then you go back and try to focus your attention on something that actually is constructive in your brain. Your attention span is just like dematerialized and no longer working. And I've noticed that TikTok has done that to my brain too. So I'm not, I'm glad I'm not alone. Yeah, I, I heard a news clip the other day about how attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. I think I, I've got it here. I can play it. Let's take a quick listen. Human beings now have a shorter attention span than a goldfish. This according to a study from Microsoft about the effects of today's digital world. By 2013, according to the report, the average human attention span was down to eight seconds. That's a second shorter than a goldfish, which means, if true, I lost some of you on this story about a paragraph back. And, and when I hear that clip, what it resonates with me is these, uh, and as you mentioned, Allison, these discussions of like addictive behavior on the internet and how you are kind of getting this like shot, this sort of like habit forming, I need another dose, I need another dose. And which uh, I think that's, I, I don't know, I think it's particularly interesting that um, these projects are being taught in an academic context and, you know, the idea about uh, critical thinking, going into depth, unpeeling the layers of the onion and all of that. It, it seems like it's, I, I'm wondering about the compatibility of that with academic discussion. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I feel like the idea that you can't get a lot of nuance in a seven second TikTok or a seven second video, I can't help but wonder how academic discussion or like Matt said, the move of academic discussion to social media, is that even compatible? If there's simply not time for nuance, if our brain wants to move on after 10 seconds of a subject. Yeah. And, you know, um, it, it may be that there's some focus on genres that could be helpful. I mean, I think if you could zoom out a level and think of it as one kind of communication, but also maintain a facility for other kinds. I mean, I'm thinking of like, you know, highway billboards. You have to be able to process them in two or three seconds when you fly by. So maybe there's a, a way in which it's a great composition. It's doing exactly what you're trying to do intellectually. Um, but if you want to, you know, go into all the different facets of a topic, you need to take a different approach or find some other form. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I think that actually is a pretty good segue into the next section of the conversation that you all had, um, where we talked sort of, it seemed like he was touching on this idea of how credible social media is academically. And um, I think it's, I think we should get back to the conversation what we were having about that and see where it goes from there. Do you find it difficult sort of integrating social media like TikTok, like Twitter, that tends to value very short form content, especially within an academic setting, which tends to value nuance, like we've all read 20 page academic articles. Do you find like that relationship difficult to meddle with? Um, 
So, like, I I like to sort of teach what is happening, um, and and I like to, you know, see my students where they are, um, and I think that, uh, like, academic discussions of social media should um, basically be focused on practice, and then theory should come after. Um, so, no, I don't think so. Um, I think that building my thoughts in that workflow um, sort of makes it make sense. And then if like, if I'm going to write about it or if I'm going to ask them to write about it, that's how I tell them to do it. You know, like rhetorical theory, not derived from practice is useless. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things you could sort of apply post hoc to social media that make perfect sense. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the idea of procedural enthymeme and algorithms, um, which is exactly that sort of thought. It's like an Aristotelian concept applied to a context, you know, almost 3000 years later. Um, but at the same time, like, I think again, because of the speed at which these transactions take place and the, like the sheer volume of them, we need an entirely different rhetorical framework. Yeah. Based on what's happening. Um, so in terms of adoption and uptake, no, it's like, they'll go for it really fast. Um, you know, even when they don't have experience with it, they'll go for it. Um, just because, uh, I think that that that's another, like as, as a writing instructor, like my writing pedagogy is based on where they are and they're doing a lot more composition and multimedia environments than they are like, you know, opening up a word doc or a Google doc and writing. And then like that latter part, that's, it's my job to connect the kind of thinking that happens in those spaces with the kind of thinking that happens on TikTok to make composition in both contexts legible to them. Can, can you say a little bit more about the enthymeme for uh, listeners who might not um, grab it right off the bat? Oh yeah. I'm sorry. Um, so an enthymeme is basically just an incomplete logical syllogism. Um, so whereas a syllogism would have, uh, you know, two premises and a conclusion, um, and enthymeme is, you know, an open premises with an assumptive, uh, an assumptive conclusion. Um, Aristotle's idea was that you would say something like children should obey their parents. Uh, therefore, um, you know, it's good that children obey their parents, like to a law, you know, to an audience, and that they would sort of accept it or reject it based on your understanding of them. Um, the idea of procedural enthymeme is kind of going back to what I said earlier, that an algorithmic process could move an audience to a conclusion in advance. Um, so uh, one example, um, this is uh, Kevin Brock and Don Shepard. It's their concept. Um, one example would be to like type into a search engine that you want to like find a certain kind of restaurant or you're interested in a certain kind of film or art. Um, and then, you know, the, uh, search engine would be able to kind of prefigure what you wanted to see and then like move you persuasively to a conclusion that you didn't even know that you wanted. Um, that's, you know, basically search engine optimization, um, based on whoever's paying the most or. So when, when you're working with first year writers, um, what amount of that kind of theorizing do you push into the assignments or into the class discussions? Uh, very little, um, especially for first year, like 149, uh, the class where I taught this TikTok unit, um, it, not strictly a first year class. I think I had mostly juniors and seniors in there. Um, so I was willing to do a little bit more rhetorical theory there actually as a companion to each, 
uh, assignment, I had them read a scholarly article. Um, and there was like, I, and what I did, I, I demonstrated this to them, just like we spent a lot of time learning how to use TikTok, um, how to navigate it, understand its affordances, uh, describe its discrete genres. We spent the same amount of time cutting apart academic articles, um, looking at how they worked, why they worked the way that they did, um, you know, what counted as persuasive as currency in those discourses. Um, and, and yeah, I, like I felt like I had more time to do that kind of thing um, in a first year class, especially like at UNC, the way it works, you know, you have to kind of do these quick hits um, in the natural sciences, the social sciences and the humanities. So you have to spend a lot of time doing like topic and content introduction. Um, so it, I feel like there's a lot less time to bring in like, oh, if I want to talk rhetorical theory, you know, let's read some rhetorical theory. Uh-huh. So, um, uh Please jump in, anybody. I've just got a bunch of thoughts that are bubbling around. When you said you take apart academic articles, much like you take apart TikTok videos to think about how they work, that makes me wonder if, like, this concept of a procedural enthymeme or some system guiding you to do something you didn't even know want, you wanted to do or some conclusion you didn't even recognize you were going to arrive at, does it have to be, you know, a social media web 2.0 platform to do that? I'm thinking of, an let's say you start reading an article, print-based article on sheets of paper, and you start to see a whole bunch of footnotes, and those footnotes have a whole bunch of work cited and all of that, and suddenly you arrive at the conclusion that this is a rigorous piece of, of intellectual work, even if maybe there's some sloppy logic in it. I want to be careful. I don't say something like way too reductive, but I mean, an algorithm is just, you know, a process. Um, it's, it's a script and we have this mystified perception just socially, um, about what, uh, communications technology is, um, you know, what kind of power it has, um, you know, particularly the power it seems to have, or, you know, we would like it to have, you know, that's, that's more me, but um, that we would like it to have over predicting how we're going to behave. Um, and, you know, the reason that I think Enthymeme, you know, is still got some currency there is first, like the things that Aristotle said were so generalizable that they make their way into other contexts very easily. Um, but also because, uh, you know, the, the context of persuasion has changed, but the desire to persuade is not. Um, so uh, rhetorical concepts like this still kind of work to help figure it out. But um, yeah, th- at the same time, like, again, like, I, I don't think, you know, there's any concept in rhetoric that holds up to just the massive amount of communication that is taking place. And also, uh, you know, the the lightness of persuasion and the ephemerality of it. Um you know, because like, okay, for example, for this podcast, I wanted to uh, grab a couple of my students' TikToks and maybe share them. I went and checked. Um, you know, I also kind of wanted to watch them again, you know, for myself. Um, and like, they're all gone. Um, and that's another thing. Uh, Kat, you mentioned like uh, one of the challenges of, or, you know, what what are the challenges of teaching social media? You have to use alt accounts. Um, you basically have to use burner accounts for them, burner accounts for me. I don't want anybody working on their main for a class. Um, you know, because I want them to be able to fully explore and do something maybe different. Um, and also like, you know, it's, it's just kind of another layer of 
anonymity and protection. Um, you know, I don't want to force anybody to kind of expose themselves. You know, there are ethical concerns to this as well. Um, and so like those accounts are, they're gone. Um, like all those TikToks are, are down. So, um, I'm glad you mentioned throwaways because as we've been talking about the TikTok algorithm and sort of algorithmic composition, I've been thinking about, I use TikTok a lot and I think it's the most uncanny social media algorithm. Like it gives me things like I thought about yesterday and didn't even Google Mm -hmm. and it's just insane. And I feel like if other students were able to like see each other's main accounts, that would be such an invasion of privacy even if they weren't seeing what they were creating, but just seeing what their algorithm is like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested in, do you like specifically tell them, please make an alt account, please make a throwaway? Yes. Um, whenever mm-hmm. I teach any social media, but yeah, when I taught this unit, I told them to make an account just for this. Um, mm-hmm. And like I said, there are ethical concerns on my side, um, but also like, in turn, like so, so you mentioned the uncanniness of the TikTok algorithm. Um, I think being able to see beginning to end how an account, uh, you know, is sort of shaped, like how a for you page is created. Um, you know, there's a lot less noise if you start, you know, from zero ostensibly, and like start from zero is maybe deceptive there because they're not. They're bringing in all of those pre-existing, you know, quirks and desires and. Um, you know, they're, they're still themselves, but like sometimes, uh, yeah, the, the TikTok algorithm, like you said, um, it's, it's like a, a slowly boiling pot type feeling where it's like, how did it even know? <laughs> um, and, and again, like, I think that what we want is to be prefigured by an algorithm more than an algorithm has the capacity to prefigure us because the more smoothly you interact with the machine, uh, the more pleasant your interaction is, um, you know, the more it seems to show you what you want, but also you want it to know what you want at the end of the day, because you want your experience on the platform to be enjoyable. Um, you want to see things you want to see. You don't want to see things you don't want to see. Um, I, uh, I was just watching a TikTok um, before this started. Um, it was uh, a guy playing 20 questions with his Alexa. Um and it was, you know, she was asking him yes or no questions and then eventually arriving at the the person he was thinking of. Right. Um, and he was mystified, like his mind was blown. He was like, how does the Alexa know who I'm thinking of? It's like the same way that your search engines can, you know, put likely favorites in front of you the same way that TikTok can determine uh, what you want to see. You're feeding it information. So those burner accounts, um, do those maybe give you an opportunity to do like some identity work? Like, could you role play? Like, say you're making a burner account and I want you to get to learn this algorithm by pretending, you know, you're a a housewife from Nebraska or, or I don't know, a CEO or what have you. This is becoming less of a thing on the internet um, because so much is being tied to, uh, you know, uh, identity anchors precisely because, you know, that we, we have this desire for algorithms to be more predictive of our desired experience. But um, yeah, like it used to be more assumed that everyone was lying on the internet. Um, and, and I feel like that has gone away. Um, and that's, that is to my horror. Uh, but um, I was just looking and I did actually have a student um, model uh, sort of a political compass of 
responses. And I've seen accounts like this since. Um, but basically, yeah, their project was to take an issue and respond to it from three different perspectives um, and to adopt a different persona for each one. Um, yeah, so that that did take place. And I, and I want to say, too, when I teach this, that I'm very hands off in terms of the content itself. Um, you know, I leave it very much open to them, sometimes to my chagrin. Like sometimes things happen that I really wish hadn't. But again, you know, I, I, I put up really strict boundaries at the very ends. So like, you know, no harassment, um, no racism, you know, um, no misogyny, no violence. Right. And then there's like all this stuff that happens in between. I know you mentioned this idea that um, we used to believe that everyone was lying on the Internet. Um, and recently I was doing a paper for one of my undergraduate English classes about the history of like fan fiction yep. and sort of this idea of things that were published online and almost an entirely online entity. Yep. It is almost impossible to document because there are usernames, there are burner accounts. You don't want to be outed, quote unquote, as a fan fiction writer. Do you think that having academia tied into social media sort of raises issues not only about like the ethics of it, but also the credibility of research in its connection to social media? That's a good question. Um, so do you mean like academics using social media or academic practices taking interest in social media? I initially framed it as like academic interest with social media, but also um, academic thought and academic discussion moving to social media platforms. Yeah. Um, so there are definitely things that we can't know, like you said, um, you know, just because of the nature of the internet and the the founding principle of it being this kind of uh, plausible deniability. Um, you know, th there are things that are tough to pin down, like who and what, and this has become difficult as people have been made to account for things that they do on the internet, rightfully so. And finally, I think so. Um, but uh, the fact is that even though there are certain parts of this that we can't determine, there are certain things that we do know, like the consequences um, and sort of the, the bang on effects of these things, um, how they reverberate out into the world and cause things uh, to happen. Like, um, uh, one thing I talked to my students about was things that uh, we can point to in the last five years that have been memed into existence. And when I say memed into existence, I mean their origin can be tied directly to a social media campaign. Um, and, you know, one of these being, uh, you know, the January 6th insurrection, which um, I would call what inspired it basically a creepypasta um, that got way out of hand. Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of people... Uh, invaded the Capitol building because of that. Um, so yeah, like who Q is, um, I, th I think we have uh, some rough idea of two or three people it could be, um, but we don't, you know, for sure know. Um, and like knowing it would be great, but taking an interest in the connection between that campaign and then what actually happened is something that we can, that's concrete. So could you say a little bit about the big picture outcomes that you had in mind as an instructor when you started a unit or an assignment like this? Yeah. Um, so one of, one of the things I said earlier was like when you yank a meme or a TikTok or, you know, a Twitter account out of its, you know, environment, out of its uh, circulation and examine it, um, 
you know, there has to be a reason because it's it's alienated from its context and you're really not understanding it as it exists. One of the things that uh, I think rhetoric does well with social media is that we're already very much concerned with the way that ideas circulate um, and how they, you know, operate to persuade. Um, so one of the outcomes is to introduce to students the concept of rhetorical knowledge, both uh, how they persuade others and how they are being persuaded. Um, and because of the sheer volume of persuasion that takes place interacting with social media, which we all kind of reflexively do at this point. Um, and certainly if you don't do a lot of social media, you rely a lot on search engines. Um, you know, even if you are, you know, a very button down person and you mostly just work, um, you know, the, the, the vital tasks that you complete every day for your job probably involve a lot of search engine use. Um, and algorithms govern all of these things. And so I wanted them to consider how algorithms were moving them, persuading them before, again, perhaps they were even aware to interact with the world in a certain way. So that was one. Um, the other thing was like, because all of this moves so fast and because I'm, you know, an intellectual and I don't think that way, um, I wanted to slow it down for them and for me um, and kind of just like take this, you know, frame by frame um, you know, how is a TikTok created? Um, when you create a TikTok, what are you thinking at every stage of its creation, um, of its curation? Um, and then like on your for you page, like when you're making a decision, whether to like something, whether to follow someone, why are you making that decision? Um, because in real time, like those decisions, like I said, TikTok is determined are made in about seven seconds. So that is just way, way too fast, um, to really think about it. And that's the idea. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, eggheads like myself want to think about things. Um, so that was another thing. Um, just a careful, critical consideration of uh, an everyday interaction because, you know, I, I want my practice to to uh, undergird my theory. Um, also, like, same same goal I have in any writing class for any assignment. Like, I want my students to be better prepared to successfully navigate these interactions. Um, I don't think any of us really come out on top. Um, I think we're all kind of subject to this and, you know, we haven't consented to it. Not really. We've never been given the opportunity. Um, yeah, sorry. That's Gene. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that a critical awareness, um, can at least give you the opportunity to, you know, if not get the upper hand, um, perhaps strive for a context where you could consent or strive for a context where, uh, you know, perhaps you don't want to merely fit the whims of an algorithm because it makes your overall experience more pleasant and more smooth. Um, it just gives you different ways to engage than the default. Um, so, yeah. I think it was interesting. This kind of ties into earlier when you were talking about like pleasure and pleasure drive on social media and how it's like borderline hedonism. But I'm interested in what you think of, well, A, I want to hear your opinion on the shadow banning thing that's going on right now on Instagram and TikTok and how it's mm -hmm. like turning into a crisis. And I'm also interested in sort of when you were talking about um, the January 6th event, like on the other end of that, there's a lot of like abolitionist community organization on TikTok. And I think it's so, it's just fascinates me. Um, how having like social media literacy is just a basic skill that everyone needs going into the world now. I agree. Um, 
and yeah, like literacy, sure. Um, critical literacy is what I push for, uh, you know, again, because like, so I, I cut my teeth looking at social movements and social media, looking at uh, hashtag me too, um, right around the time that Brett Kavanaugh was being confirmed for the Supreme Court. Um, I was interested in uh, some of the social media discourse around uh, the uh, senator from Maine, Susan Collins, um, who among Republican senators caught, uh, along with Claire McCaskill, um, far disproportionate amounts of hell um, for the way that she voted. And, you know, the the obvious immorality of uh, that vote or having a Supreme Court at all is not really a, a debate I want to get into. Um, but uh, I was interested in the way that the Me Too hashtag, which like had started as kind of a way to be restorative to women um, and to empower them, um, was then like sort of used to bludgeon two very prominent public women. Um, it was it was bizarre to me, um, but it's it's what played out. And so what Matt and I were talking about is the hashtag Me Too movement, and we were sort of discussing how it began as an attempt at restorative justice for a lot of women, but then through the abuse of social media and doxing and scare tactics, it, like Matt said, it became a way to bludgeon. Um, like high profile woman. Um, and yeah. so when we think about that, you want to think about, is there a sort of critical literacy for engaging with social media and the content that you see on social media, especially with how politicized a lot of it is. And it's on the one hand, maybe you spend a lot of time online and, you know, there's no rule book for how to engage with what you view on social media, but do you over time just like learn through osmosis and develop a greater understanding and critical literacy of what to believe and what not to believe? Or is the internet so polarizing that inevitably you're just going to become radicalized or indoctrinated into a movement or start believing conspiracy theories and it gets worse. So like, how can we improve critical literacy of TikTok, of Twitter, should we be teaching it in the classroom? Is this like a necessary skill for people, for young people to carry with them into adulthood? Yeah. You know, I, I remember um, a lot of energy 10, 15, even 20 years ago given to what was called information literacy. And it was responding to the fact that, you know, when the World Wide Web came out, suddenly anyone could publish information. And so there were no longer gatekeepers, editors, and you know, news organizations vetting anything. And I think libraries led the way in, in a lot of ways of like, okay, if you come across a document, how do you make sure that it's you know got valid points, or how how do you judge its um, I don't know its accuracy? Um, and I you know I feel like that was almost playing catch up a little bit with uh, here comes all these documents, we better figure out how to handle them. But I agree, I'm not 100% sure what, where that training is now taking place in terms of the speed at which social media is playing out and um, the, the back and forth and also the, um, the echo chambers that play out in social, in social media spaces. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question about where does media literacy take place? I mean, think about it. When I was a kid, I 
the only time I interacted with the internet was under supervision or educational sites. Um, but now I will see like my little cousins in, start using their mom's Instagram at two, three years old. And I think the responsibility, unfortunately, for like media literacy has to fall on like the individual to learn, which sort of means that when you interact with algorithms like TikTok, it's so easy for you to enter echo chambers because you interact with content and the algorithm picks up, you really like this alt-right pipeline content, I'm going to feed you more of it. And so it's nearly impossible to interact with the internet if you don't already have it, um, because picking it up along the way means that the literacy that you pick up is inherently biased based on what AI algorithms feed you, if that makes sense. Those are like interesting parallels because Dan was talking about like when the web, like web 1.0 came out, people saw it as like a very democratizing space because you could, anyone could publish anything all of a sudden. But now that we're living on this like algorithmic model of the internet in its current era where it is easy to become radicalized when, like Kat said, when you're engaging with alt-right pipeline content, if you keep liking it, you're going to get more of it and it's quickly going to get more and more extreme. Another uh, phenomenon, I'm sure this was present before, but not in such uh, such amplitude, is people understand that and are deliberately manipulating the system, feeding you know one kind of information or false information or what have you into this the system to kind of just uh, create this amazing loop feedback loop that just um, is incredibly powerful. It's you're swimming upstream. It feels like. And all of those people are making money spreading this information too. Like, look at the Joe Rogan Spotify scandal. Yeah, I, I think that's why it's so important what Matt is doing because then you know people are in a supervised situation in some ways in a classroom, but are able to um, almost like become participants in these spaces and hopefully develop that literacy in a way that would be impossible if you just open up Instagram or TikTok and start clicking and, and pressing on things. So uh, maybe that's where uh, that the role for social media and academia circles back and it does become a powerful piece of the, of the learning environment. I think now we should go back to him and find out what his secret is. So for other instructors listening, um, what is your secret? What's the advice you would give to somebody who wanted to pursue something like this or something similar? Um, you don't have to. I, like I would say, first of all, like don't feel pressure to teach something just because it's popular or trendy. Um, but if you are interested, I would say that um, you know you should meet your students where they are. Um, and uh, it takes a lot of, you know, kind of willingness to struggle with them. Um, like uh, whenever I teach a new technology, uh, a lot of times it's also relatively new to me. Like maybe I'm two or three weeks ahead of them when I'm teaching it. Um, not always. Uh, but like with social media, especially um, a lot of times, like if you want to teach something while it's relevant, you have to take it on while it's relatively new. Um, so, um, yeah, like I would say don't hesitate because, you know, if you have intellectual commitments, um, 
it's entirely possible and, and quite likely that uh, practice, you know, on these platforms and in these media uh, reflect those commitments just in new contexts. I'm really surprised to hear that a lot of your students weren't familiar with TikTok because I remember like maybe in like 2017, 2018, when it first kicked off, like everyone knew about it around me. Yeah, um, I am constantly surprised by this. Like it, it always seems to be true. I've never really had a class where everybody knew how to use the thing that I was teaching or even most of them. Um, like it wasn't even half that had ever used it before. Um, and like, I think, I don't know. I, I so I, I, I'm with you. Um, you know, I had used the app before, um, you know, people I was, you know, in my friend circle had used it before. Um, and so like, I was like, okay, so my experiences are probably about, you know, if I'm this old and using it, then they're definitely using it. Right. Um, but the fact of the matter is that like, I think I'm already an enthusiastic adopter of these kinds of things. Um, and not everyone is. Um, and I think that this is where we get a lot of uncritical engagement with it too, because like, um, it's one thing to use it and to kind of go along with it. Like, but then think about, um, how you would be critically aware of TikTok if you don't use it, right. How you would understand how it shapes the world around you if it's not part of your media diet. Um, mm -hmm. and then like, to consider, um, there were students I had in that position that then like kind of got to use it and got to see how it works. Um, that, that was, you know, not an outcome at the beginning. Um, it's never something I explicitly set out to do to like expose people to things that they don't already use. Um, but it was a nice, you know, bonus. I feel like it's one thing to be a lurker, which I historically am but it's like a whole other thing to be a content creator. Like even if you've been using TikTok for a long time, it might be scary to actually start creating your own content if you've just been like lurking the whole time. Yeah, this was one of the explicit parts of my lesson, um, how much easier it was to consume mm -hmm. than to create um, and how all of these platforms are designed this way. Um, the explicit reason being that consumption simply creates more data. Mm -hmm. um, your interactions with TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, like these are all just you filling out surveys all day for social media companies for free. Mm -hmm. And again, you don't consent, you can't, um, but it's fun. It's also like it's designed as a pleasurable experience. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, again, a deal that nobody made, but we all sort of implicitly understand is happening. Um, and I think, like, one of the things I wanted them to see was, like, why does it want you to consume? Like, why is creating such a frictioned experience and consuming is so smooth? Because, like, yeah. TikTok is one of the easiest things to just sit and use for hours. It's just pop, 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 pop. It's almost like it's sort of the new social contract and a lot of people don't realize how much of their data is being held by these corporations that apparently people think Google and Facebook should have UN seats now. And like, we're just <laughs> yeah. being surveilled constantly. I saw that. <laughs> no, um, 
I guess I'll shout out another reference point, a uh, philosopher of information, uh, Luciano Floridi, mm-hmm. um, talks about uh, one of the things he likes to talk about is uh, health and medical data, um, which we like is one of the few areas where we have any regulation, but also one of the areas where there's still tragically a lot of slippage and a whole lot of pressure to create like telehealth contexts, especially after the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, basically forcing you to um, engage in these interfaces to get medical care. Um, and he talks about the concept of being a data citizen um, or being uh, someone who has uh, data that is personal, sovereign, um, and indicative of uh, a uh, an owed dignity, um, and the fact that that dignity simply does not exist, um, mm-hmm. that your data is subject to exposure, um, to use, and uh, exploitation um, in basically every context, um, and that you don't have a choice because if you try to opt out, you simply cannot participate, which is not a, a viable option for any of us anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of times I feel like that social media, um, communications technology, the internet in general is talked about like a treat, um, like something that people only use for pleasure or enjoyment. Um, and not like the absolutely vital part of everyone's life that it now is. Um, and one of the things I, uh, you know, not, not much positive has come out of this COVID pandemic, but maybe one of the things that has is people are starting to understand that it's a vital, um, utility you know it's not a treat people use it for you know their livelihood um Mm -hmm. and they have been for a long time but i think it took you know it took the vast majority of people working exclusively from their computers um for a little while you know for it to be really felt and understood it's such a slippery slope to just see it as a treat because like one day you're just you know browsing 4chan and then the next day you're at a capital riot (laughs) <laughs> yeah and that that like that sentence is crazy making um like i know when i hear that even when i say it and i know that i have comprehension of what happened like just trying to reckon with that transition makes me feel insane and the reason i think it does is because like i said all of this is happening so fast and at such volumes that like i i don't think on an intellectual level you really can understand um and I think, you know, what happens is is a lot of it is just turning compulsive because you become a smooth object for the machine. You don't resist because resisting means a less pleasant interaction. And so, yeah, like your your thoughts and desires can be sublimated to an algorithmic process. And then eventually, you know, you will sort of begin to agree with it implicitly. Yeah. And which I think is what we, happened to a lot of those people. Yeah. And then we get this uh, breaking down of this boundary between virtual and physical space and reality in many ways. You know, um, I'm physically in the Capitol, but I'm still on TikTok with my phone in my hand and um, I'm in these two spaces at once. And then, you know, you were talking about um, social media literacy um and how do you have that awareness in the moment or if you zoom up and you said uh, could you uh gloss the creepy pasta reference that you made for the January 6th um insurrection as well oh yeah i'm not like i'm not in this case maybe a like a, a totally adequate internet historian but creepy pasta is a phenomena where basically um you would read on message boards cryptic messages um you know, that, that would sort of appear and, you know, they would, uh, you know, they would be 
you know, semi-threatening or, uh, you know, menacing. Um, and, you know, they would have currency kind of like memes they would appear over and over again. Um, and, uh, you know, the Q messages, the Q drops is what they were called, um, were appearing on 4chan, uh, posts on the politics board, I think. Um, I, mm-hmm. I'm not, again, I'm not being a good internet historian. It's a good thing. I'm not one. Um, it was Paul. Yeah. Um, and, uh, basically they, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, you know, it's, it's a joke. It's not even mine, but they looked like creepypastas. They were cryptic, vague, designed to be, um, misunderstood if possible, uh, by the maximum number of people. Um, but also to be compelling in a very specific way to the groups that would consume them. Um, so. Yeah. Um, it makes me just uh, appreciate even more the kind of assignments that you're doing, because I feel like without this constant vigilance to create social media literacy and information literacy and algorithmic literacy, like you're talking about, um, people are just like, you know, floatsome and jetsome on a stream of social media influence with, uh, with very little agency until they can get these moments of recognition, maybe. And we may still be, um, like I said, the conditions for consent did not exist. Um, you know, the conditions for not participating or resisting or, or not going along, like basically you're, you're either opting out or you are. And even if you opt out, you exist as a useful data point. Your refusal um, is itself a marketable and, uh, you know, again, predictive factor. Um, so, you know, not to mention like, you know, you probably have, you know, local representatives that derive the entirety of their platform and agenda from, you know, stupid shit that they got from the QAnon boards. Like, you know, so there, there is no, in, in a meaningful sense, opt out anymore. Um, and then like, if you are critically aware, like, I guess, you know, if there's a call to action at the end of any of this, which, you know, I, I don't even know that there is other than like, we have to move towards a context where we can consent. And that, I think, means considerations of human dignity and citizenship on the Internet for our data. Um, I think it also means a more comprehensive understanding of the social dynamics that have created the situation um, that involve, again, a global network of exploitation. um, And that being in uh, an information society actually is just a a rebranding of the same, um, you know, post-industrial reality that we've always been living in, um, that we haven't left the world behind, that the material world is very much responsible for the ability we even have to have these interactions. Um, and that, uh, data citizenship, data citizenship includes dignity for those people and those places and those, you know, uh, you know, unfortunately exploited people in places that, that even make the internet a thing. Like the internet is a military project that's established at the end of a rifle. Internet uh, communication technology doesn't happen without resources that are extracted from other places. Um, so, like I, I don't want to like I don't want it to seem like my head's in the clouds when I say data citizenship. When I say dignity, I mean dignity all the way across the board. Wow, that was great. I really, uh, really learned a lot, and um, uh, as I always do. Uh, so thank you, everybody. I really, uh, I really enjoyed that. Thank you, everyone. This was great. Yeah, I learned a lot, and it's topically relevant too. So 
that is always makes it more interesting to me. Yeah. And to everyone listening, thank you for listening. We really appreciated it. And I hope you learned something too.